Hey, Rarecast listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new program from Global Genes called Data DIY. Access to data is essential for advancing the understanding and treatment of rare diseases. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is to be as savvy about data as researchers and clinicians. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to become empowered data owners and stewards. If you'd like to learn more about the program, attend an upcoming Data DIY workshop, or view resources, go to globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Drug developers and regulators are rapidly expanding the use of real-world evidence to develop rare disease therapies, but a new report finds payers are far less enthusiastic about incorporating such data and evaluating the value of therapies. The report from Cineos Health found payers have concerns about a lack of standards and have gaps in their understanding. We spoke to Meg Alexander, head of the Reputation and Risk Management Practice for Cineos Health, about the report, the important role real-world evidence can play in rare disease drug development, and why payers are moving slower than drug developers and regulators to embrace real-world evidence. Meg, thanks for joining us. Danny, thank you so much for having me today. I've been really excited to talk to you about real-world evidence and the role that it can play with both rare disease development and market access. Well, let's start with a a definition. When we talk about real-world evidence, what's meant by the term and and what does it include? I am so glad you asked that uh, because I find that there's actually not widespread understanding or consensus on this in the field. So starting with the foundation is a great place to begin. So let's just start. Real-world evidence is actually obtained using real-world data. And I suggest we actually start with real-world data. Um, And that's basically data that's derived outside of the traditional randomized controlled trial process. So real-world data can be from electronic health records. It can be from medical claims and billing. I think in a very exciting way, it can come increasingly now from mobile phones and wearable devices, as well as things that we may be more accustomed to in the rare disease community, such as natural histories and registries, as well as patient-reported outcomes. So that's what real-world data is. That's really the building blocks. And real-world evidence is essentially the synthesis or the analysis of this real-world data. And really the most important thing to know when we're talking about real-world evidence is that it basically creates a bridge. It helps fill a knowledge gap for us in the field of healthcare of basically between what we can find and determine from randomized controlled trials and how therapies actually perform in the real world. And why is the use of real-world data and real-world evidence so important when we talk about rare disease? I think it's 
hugely important, and there is tremendous opportunity here for where real-world evidence can help advance not just the approvability, but also the accessibility of therapies for rare and orphan conditions. And really, when I am counseling our clients here at Cineos Health, the four areas that I think real-world evidence holds huge potential um, is, is these four areas. Basically, um, we know that real-world evidence can be very effective when used as control arms in clinical trials. That's really the first place where we're probably more commonly used to hearing its application. So the use of natural history registries or potential categories where there's a very grievous condition where it would be unethical to conduct a control arm of the trial. The second area is really helping fill the gap of how medicines work in the real world outside of highly controlled clinical trial protocols. So after we've gotten through the approval process, we can see how that therapy is performing. The third area is the ability to potentially expedite approvals and the use of additional indications. You know, we can look at therapies and how they're being used in the real world and potentially see their benefit for additional subpopulations or indications. And then the fourth, and this is really the area that I get excited about, is market access because we are seeing so many rare disease therapies come to the fore and get approved, which is excellent, but of course that only matters if patients can get them and benefit from them. So as we're seeing more expedited approvals come from regulators of rare disease therapies, we want to make sure that payers are seeing the value of those therapies in the real world and covering them so that patients can get them and afford them. So those are really the four key areas of where there's current use and tremendous opportunity to apply real-world evidence so that patients can both get and afford very effective rare disease therapies. The FDA has been moving with speed with regards to the use of real-world evidence. What have they done and how well established are the regulatory guidelines and standards? So the FDA has been very responsive to the application of real-world evidence. Danny, you and your listenership probably are familiar with the fact that in the end of 2016, the 21st Century Cures, Pass, or Cures Act passed Congress, and basically Congress informed the FDA or directed the FDA that they want to see the use and the application of real-world evidence across the board, including for rare diseases. The FDA has been fantastic about that, and they've tried to be very responsive, coming up with guidances, including last May, they gave basically the development community more guidance on how to use and collect and submit real-world data and real-world evidence for both therapies and biologics. So the FDA is working as a partner trying to address and advance this. With that said, it's a, it's a moving ball <laughs> down the field. We're still seeing developers and trade associations weigh in about how we define and collect real-world evidence, what that should look like, how it's submitted. So it's still very much a work in progress, but we're seeing a lot of receptivity on the part of the FDA trying to standardize, make it clearer, and ultimately apply it so that developers can more expeditiously advance rare disease therapies using real-world evidence. You talked about the different ways that real-world evidence can be used. My guess is people may not be aware that we've already seen approvals that have incorporated real-world data into their packages. Can you offer a few examples that, that listeners may not be aware of? 
Absolutely. I think rare disease is an area where there's been some exciting application of real-world evidence to the tremendous benefit of rare disease patient communities. One of the examples that I'm frankly most proud and most excited about was a therapy that I actually worked on with a client of ours uh, for CLN2. Um, for those of your listeners who are not familiar with CLN2, it's a very rare and very grave form of Batten's disease that impacts children. Um, just to give you a sense of the prevalence, I think it's something like less than one in a million children have this. So when you think about a developer trying to put together a large-scale trial with these children, it's very hard to find them, and frankly, they're very they're very sick, they're very fragile, um, and it has very high rates of mortality. So BioMarin worked very intimately and extremely collaboratively with the FDA to basically combine a phase one, phase two trial where they used a natural history, basically as the control arm for that therapy, which was later called Bernura when it was approved. And they were able, as a result, to use a trial of 22 patients um, who were non-randomized against the natural history control arm. And they saw that in 21 of the patients, that the disease did not progress anywhere near as, you know, grievously as it would in the natural history, and that these children were able to hold on to their milestones and basically their ability to move and function much more effectively than the natural control. So this was incredibly powerful. The therapy was ultimately approved on it, and CLN2, as I mentioned at the top, very grievous condition. This was a huge advancement in the field. And we're now starting to see similar trends be applied as we look at gene therapies and other forms of precision medicine. So that was back in 2017, but it created a really incredible precedent um, and, you know, is continuing to be considered in similar ways today. In Cineo Health's recent study on real-world evidence, you found a bit of a disconnect from what's been happening with regulators and drug developers and the way payers view real-world evidence. How do payers view the role of real-world evidence when it comes to determining the value of therapies? It's a great question, Danny. Thank you, and thank you for, for reading our report on it. Today, I would characterize payers seeing real-world evidence as in two, two ways, with confusion and with caution. When it comes to confusion, some of what we need to remember is that real-world evidence is, as a field and a form of evidence is moving very rapidly, and it's really an umbrella term for lots of different permutations of potential analyses and data. So there's, quite frankly, just some lexicon difference. We may all be speaking the same language, but sometimes perhaps we're speaking with a little bit of different dialects, which is making it harder for us to understand between the regulatory, the development, and the payer communities. So very specifically, we found in our survey of about 64 pairs in the U.S. and Europe that many are not using the terminology of real-world evidence at all. In fact, it's roughly about more than half in the U.S., and it's a little bit more than a third in Europe. So first of all, we need to just close the language gap here and, and get some more alignment on terminology and standards. So that's the confusion piece. And then on the caution side of the coin, payers are sometimes questioning factors about the credibility of real-world evidence, meaning is it reproducible? If the developer, the manufacturer is the person running the analysis, 
Could the data be cherry-picked? Could it be proved again? How does that compare with their own internal models and claims data that they may have in their databases? So there's some real caution both about the reproducibility, but also the objectivity of real-world evidence. And those are some real hurdles um, that we have to work as an industry and as a field to overcome together because we all want to advance medicine together, and we want patients to get medicines that help keep them well or improve their health. But those are some real obstacles that our data and our survey found that we need to find a way to overcome. Well, part of the issues with with that last point, I imagine, is is that there's a lack of standards. How how does that get addressed? It's a good question. And, you know, just from the, the standards perspective, I think some of this is new. So the fact that the FDA is trying to gain alignment on what forms of evidence and data can be submitted, what formats they need to be in, that's really helpful. That's a first start. The other things that we can do is there are very good uh, associations out there like ISPOR and PCORI that are looking at data and health economic data and trying to better standardize not just the definitions as I alluded to them earlier, but also essentially how do we need to demonstrate and share this data in a way that will build more goodwill and credibility. So what I would say, particularly for the rare disease communities who are looking to rapidly advance meaningful therapies, there's a couple things that we should all be thinking about together that could be helpful. Um, The first is publishing in peer-reviewed journals. Payers do tend to give more credence to peer-reviewed content. So if we're not in a competitive field or a competitive race between two therapies for a rare disease, publishing can be really helpful. Also, trying to publish your protocols up front can give payers more of a line of sight of how that data was gone about and created which can build confidence. And then finally, as you know so well and your listeners know well, Danny, key opinion-leading physicians and academic centers of excellence are hugely important in rare disease. So starting to bring some of those voices on early into the process of how we're going about collecting real-world data and real-world evidence can be important because if you're a payer, when you go to make a decision about coverage, odds are you're going to call the expert on that rare disease. So if some of the key opinion-leading physicians and centers of excellence are bought into this approach and can help validate its accuracy and its importance, that can really help shape the way the payer is looking at the credibility of the data as well. You also found in your survey that there was a varied view based on geography. How do those perceptions vary geographically and any sense why there's that disparity on a geographic basis? It's a good question. So there are disparities that we're seeing both in the U.S. and in Europe between the two regions as well as in within markets within Europe itself. There are some generalizable areas of caution. I'll speak to those first. And then there's some market-specific nuances to your point, Danny, that we found. Overall, what we're seeing when it comes to payer cautions about real-world evidence, and this is particularly true in the U.S., is questions about objectivity, transparency, and reproducibility. So payers are looking at their own medical claims data and asking, why should I necessarily trust an analysis from the developer who, you know, has some skin in the game to be able to serve the 
evidence to me in this way relative to my own models. So that's a real challenge that we need to overcome. And some of those approaches that I talked about a moment ago can really help. When we go across the pond to Europe, we see that increasingly health technology assessors, um, which often are the groups that in many European countries help ensure and make determinations about access to medicines, are more open to real-world evidence. So that's a positive sign, but it very much varies based on geography. So, for example, in Italy and Spain, we've seen more receptivity to the application and the use of real-world evidence, whereas in Germany, we saw more hesitance, very similar to some of the trends that we saw in the U.S. about questions about objectivity and manufacturing data. I think as an industry and for those who are trying to develop rare disease therapies, we should be thinking about where are their markets, where the nation is actually the payer, because in some of those markets, we may have better claims data, better registries that we can tap into. So that helps address some of the question about the objectivity and bias of the data. But it's it's very inconsistent. It clearly shows there's a lot of work that we all have to do to get on the same page. What are the consequences of regulators and drug makers moving down this path and embracing real-world evidence and leaving payers behind? What will this mean to patients? Well, two things. One is approvable does not necessarily equal accessible. So that's the challenge that we really need to think about here, because if we do have supportive and favorable regulators, which is fantastic, which we have certainly seen from the US FDA increasing the approvals of rare disease therapies, if they're not covered by insurers, if they're not accessible, we're going to continue to run into huge barriers, right? We we want to make sure that we're not just approving efficacious rare disease therapies, but that those patients who can benefit from them get them. So I don't think we should be looking at this as a race. We need to be looking at this as a team effort of how do we move everyone downfield together. And ultimately, payers should have skin in the game because they are paying for therapies. So they want to know that they're paying for therapies that work. And real-world evidence is an incredible tool in helping unlock the answers to how rare disease medicines provide value in the real world. Not to sound too cynical, but I'd argue that one problem may be that drug developers and, and even regulators have an incentive to embrace real-world evidence. What incentive do payers have to embrace real-world evidence? Payers should have a significant rationale for believing in and advancing the use of real-world evidence, because at the end of the day, as as is very true in the definition of who they are, they're paying for medicines. So they have a lot of skin in the game to ensure that they are getting value for their investment. So there's really three reasons, if I'm a payer, why I actually should care about embracing real-world evidence. Um, the first, as I just mentioned, is value for money. They're paying for the therapy, so they want to ensure that those are going to patients that they're actually effective and that they're working in. Increasingly, the second piece of why payers should care is the burgeoning use of outcomes-based agreements. We've seen some fantastic therapies improved, approved in the last two years that are working with payers and the developer to have outcomes-based agreements. Um, so basically, you know, they're trying to understand how they're paying for therapies based on their performance in the real world, similar to clinical trials. But you need to have real-world evidence to assess that. And then finally, payers also are the ones who set formularies. And 
you know, patients really think of formularies as, you know, what tier their therapy is on. When we all go to the pharmacy counter, it's the difference of whether we pay $20 at the pharmacy counter or $200 at the pharmacy counter. But formularies are readjusted with some frequency. So real-world evidence can actually provide the insights to payers about how therapies are working in a competitive landscape and what therapies should be on a lower tier versus a higher tier. So at the end of the day, payers should actually have a lot of skin in the game to invest in and apply real-world evidence. We just need to come to some common standards about the credibility and the collection of that data and how we apply it. The report takes a rather optimistic view. Why the optimism? I, I think you hear here is really in what I just said is this is the future um, in the sense of we have incredible technology today to capture more forms of real-world data than ever before. When I talked about the definitions of real-world data earlier, you heard me talking about electronic health records and mobile devices, but increasingly we're able to use even new forms of technology like natural language processing, which is an incredible form of of technology that enables us to look at some of the soft data and things like medical records, like notes, uh, the notes that your physician or nurse may take at an appointment, and to be able to analyze that for trends and for signals. So we have incredible technology today that is coupled with also miraculous medicine in terms of what we are seeing with gene therapies and precision medicine. And frankly, the more we learn about the genetic underpinnings of disease, the more rare disease therapies we'll have. So the technology is there. The medical science is there. Now we just need to have the same level of innovation and reimbursement. And there's no way we're going to be able to realize that if we don't embrace real-world evidence as a field. So I see this very much as an eventuality. It's coming. We just need to be having open lines of communications between payers, regulators, patient communities, and pharmaceutical developers to be able to get there together. What's it ultimately going to take to move payers to have faith in real-world evidence and incorporate such data in their evaluations of the value of rare disease therapies? Well, like most things in life, I think it starts by listening and listening to what the payers have to say early in the process, too. Ultimately, they are the ones helping to cover the cost and, you know, provide the medicine to their insured, you know, those who are insured, their members. So we need to start by listening to them and getting their input early on on what types of real-world data that they would find to be convincing. So a place that I always suggest for developers is starting early in the process by holding an advisory board with payers and asking them, you know, what forms of data would they find to be meaningful? Where would they want to see it published? What level of transparency about the protocols would we need to bring to bear? So we should start by listening, but that's not all. There's a huge opportunity here for patient rare disease communities and those who care and treat for them. So those third-party groups can certainly help advance what types of data, including patient-reported outcomes, are meaningful to them. The more consensus there is there, the more open dialogue there are with both insurers and 
drug developers on those topics, um, the better consensus we'll be able to achieve. And then, frankly, developers can also very much tap into things like not just registries, but also expanded access programs. Those are programs that already tend to have more credibility with payers based on our research, and there's tremendous amounts of insights that can be mined there. So those are some places where we would really recommend beginning where we think there's a lot of opportunity to continue to apply real-world evidence for the advancement of rare disease therapies. Meg Alexander, Head of Reputation and Risk Management Practice for Cineos Health. Meg, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.